If you have your Bible here this morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. If you're visiting with us today, you should know that throughout this year we've been going through verse by verse the book of Revelation. And my, what a blessing it has been. And as we come to chapter 11, we are coming to a message entitled, The Seventh Trumpet. Without a doubt, one of the greatest pieces of music that's ever been written is Handel's Messiah. In fact, people who aren't familiar with Handel or classical music at all instantly recognize the Hallelujah Chorus when they hear it. Now what most don't realize is that the story of the man behind the music is just as riveting. Despite all of Handel's talent and fame, the man faced incredible adversity. Several times he found himself penniless and on the verge of bankruptcy. And amid those financial problems, he had failing health. In fact, he suffered a debilitating seizure that left his right arm limp and he caused him to lose the use of four fingers in that right hand. And so in 1781, at just the age of 56, he thought that he was done musically. It was time for him to retire. But you know, God is a God of second chances, isn't He? And it's not over until God says it's over. He had a, a great friend in his life, Charles Jennings, who gave him a libretto on the life of Christ. And as Handel studied this piece of work, his spirit was stirred. The Holy Spirit began to work in him. And immediately the floodgates of inspiration opened up to Handel like never before. And he wrote music nonstop. He locked himself away and for three weeks composed music. He spent another two days creating the orchestrations. And after 24 days, he emerged from his hermitage and he had in his hand 260 pages of a musical manuscript, the equivalent of a musical marathon. Experts in music tell us that Handel averaged writing an estimated 15 notes a minute. And I don't know anything about music, but I guess that's pretty fast. He called the piece Messiah. And one of his biographers, a man named Newman Flower, said this of that accomplishment. Considering the immensity of the work and the short time involved, it will remain, perhaps forever, the greatest feat in the whole history of music composition. Towards the end of the Messiah, the focus zeroes in on the triumphant return and reign of Christ. And that's when the choir breaks out in that hallelujah chorus. And one line that is sung during that crescendo is taken directly from the passage that we're about to read here in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. And it is this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ He shall reign forever and ever. Now, it's amazing to think that one of the greatest pieces of music ever written on earth is actually taken directly from heaven's songbook. And one day, if you're a child of God, here's the good news, you'll be able to enjoy and sing that song with the heavenly hosts one day in the presence of Christ. Now, as we have studied Revelation thus far, we've noticed that this book is not just a book about the wrath of God. Yes, there is judgment. And yes, there is a God pouring out His wrath on the earth. But this is also a book about the worship of God. The wrath of God and the worship of God. Because 
punctuated throughout all of these strange and mysterious visions and terrible judgments are incredible moments of worship. It's as though the windows of heaven are opened throughout the book of Revelation and we can peer in and get a brief glimpse at the sights and the sounds of those gathered around the throne, the heavenly hosts and the 24 elders and the four living creatures as they raise their anthems of praise to the King of Kings. We saw it already in chapter 4 and 5. There were the living creatures and the 24 elders. That's the church. They were worshiping around the throne in chapters 4 and 5. Then we paused in chapter 7 and we heard the triumphant song of the tribulation martyrs who were killed for their faith. Now we come to chapter 11 where the seventh trumpet is blown and when that happens, a hallelujah chorus among the 24 elders rings out. And as the elders sing a new song to the Lamb who sits upon the throne, they express praise in four different expressions. And so if you're taking notes today, we're going to break apart this triumphant hymn, and I hope that you can worship with me as we look at this passage. The first verse of this, they offer praise for Christ's reign. Christ's reign. Look at what... Verse 15 says, And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is, for you have taken your great power and, watch this, begun to reign. Now, who are these 24 elders? Well, in our previous messages, we've looked in chapter 4 and 5, and we noticed that the 24 elders are symbolic of the church. That's you and I worshiping around the throne of God in the future. Now, according to chapter 4, verse 4, they are clothed in white, which is a picture of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've taken off the old rags of sin and, and death, and we've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They wear crowns on their head. That's a picture of the rewards that have been given out by Jesus for faithful service. And we know that these crowns become tokens of worship to cast at the feet of Jesus as we worship Him in glory. And friend, you don't want to be empty-handed. You want to be able to cast a crown at the feet of Jesus one day. And then that number 24, what does that mean? Well, it is thought to represent the fullness or the completion as God is bringing together His church from the Jews and the Gentiles, 12 from the Jews and twelve from the Gentiles being made together in the body and in the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's an interesting progression that takes place throughout this book as you study these worship scenes. In chapter 4, if you read that hymn where they sing, the elders praise God as the Creator. In chapter 5, they turn their praise to Christ as the Redeemer. And now we have read in chapter 11 where they worship Christ as the King of Kings. And so the theme of this first verse in this heavenly song 
is the sovereignty of Christ. That Jesus is taking back the earth as His rightful inheritance. And friend, that's been happening ever since chapter 5 when Christ is holding that seven sealed scroll. And each time He opens a seal, that's the title deed of the earth, He is taking back the earth for Himself. Loosening the grip of Satan upon this world. Now, those seven seals that were on that scroll that Jesus held, when He unleashed those, out came seven judgments. And when He got to the seventh seal and He opened that, what followed were the seven trumpet judgments. And each judgment has gotten progressively worse in frequency and intensity because as He's doing that, Jesus, like I said, was loosening Satan's grip on this world. And now we come to the seventh trumpet. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, it, like the others, will bring in seven more judgments. The bold judgments. And it's a time of singing and praise and worship in heaven because the cosmic transition of power is happening. Jesus is beginning to unroll out His kingdom and rule in heaven just as it is on earth. All the hopes and dreams that the church has prayed about, that you have longed for, for justice to be meted out, for righteousness and truth to endure and reign, for the Lamb of God to be proclaimed to every corner of the earth, all of that is about to begin to happen. God is fulfilling His promises to the church. And friend... Praise God if you're in the church, you're going to be there and have the best seats from the banister of heaven to see it all happen. And so they praise Christ for His reign upon the earth. Several years ago, when Billy Graham was in the heyday of his ministry, he was being interviewed by a very well-known reporter. And he said, Reverend Graham, with all the wars and the racial tension, The rampant immorality happening in our world today. What is this world coming to? And he said, Dr. Graham, how can you remain so optimistic with all this going on in our world? Billy Graham with those steely blue eyes looked at the reporter and he said, I'm optimistic because I've read the final chapters of the Bible. And friend, it's not so much what this world is coming to, but who is coming to this world. Friend, I'm glad to tell you today that Jesus Christ is the goal to which all of history is moving. And I'm proud today to tell you that history is His story. We may not know what tomorrow holds, but I know the One who holds all my tomorrows... Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8, He said, Before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say, I was. He didn't say, I will be. I'm in process. No, He said, I'm the great I am. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Friend, He's the Lion and the Lamb today. And I'm here to tell you because of Him Your past is redeemable. Your present can be meaningful. And your future can be hopeful. Somebody praise Jesus in the house of God today. So they praise Him for His reign. Then secondly, we see that they praise Christ for His retribution. I don't know about you, but I'm having a good time in God's house today. And friend, if your preacher isn't sweating, he's not doing his job. 
Verse 18, look at this. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So we see here that when the seventh trumpet is blown, we have the beginning of the end of God's wrath being poured out here on the earth. Just as that seventh seal contained seven trumpet judgments, so too that seventh trumpet contains seven bowl judgments. And the sounding of this last trumpet here starts the last and the worst series of judgments that will befall the earth. Now verse 18, which we read there, is an interesting verse for another reason. It's actually like a table of contents, if you will, for the remainder of the book because in verse 18 we have several prophetic events all contained in that verse. Listen to what John MacArthur wrote about this. He said, The sounding of the seventh trumpet marks a significant milestone in the book of Revelation. It sets in motion the final events leading up to the return of the Lord Jesus and the establishment of His earthly Millennial Kingdom. Now the elders there in that verse mention two upcoming judgments that will await the unbelieving world. The first we read in the beginning of that verse, and that's Christ's victory over the nations. It says in verse 18 again, The nations raged, but your wrath came. Now, the verse actually looks forward in time to Revelation 19, where the nations will try and gather themselves under the banner of the Antichrist, and they will try to fight Jesus as He has returned to the earth. Friend, that's pretty stupid. To try and gather all of your military might and fight against the Creator of the world who can merely speak the Word and instantly turn them all into dust. But God is going to allow the nations of the world to do that. And in fact, if you read over in Joel chapter 3 verse 2, the Bible says that God is actually going to gather all the nations together in one place and He will take them down with one fell swoop. Listen to what Joel 3, 2 says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's another name for the valley of Megiddo. And I will enter in a judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and divided up my land. And so with one word... Jesus is going to stand before all of the armies and He will speak that word and all of Antichrist and His forces will be crippled. You believe Jesus can do that today? Hey, listen to me, friend. If He can stand outside the grave of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth. If He can stand on the bow of a storm-tossed boat on the Sea of Galilee and say, peace, be still. Friend, He can step on the balcony of heaven and say, church, come up hither and the ground is going to break open. And He can stand on the valley of Megiddo and say, enough is enough and judge the living and the dead. Friend, I read this, I'm glad I'm on the winning side. Listen to what Erwin Lutzer wrote. He said, Christ's would-be rivals will come to a humiliating and shameful end. They will finally be shown to be puppets of the God of this world, and God will prove how empty and futile are man's idols of power and pride. 
The final days of Antichrist will be proof that only God's Son can bring order out of chaos. Only God's Son can balance the scales of justice. Only God's Son can bring restoration. And only God's Son can bring peace to this world. There'll be no peace until the Prince of Peace plants His foot back on planet Earth. Christ's victory over the nations. And then they also sing about Christ's verdict over the dead. We read it also in verse 18. And the time for the dead to be judged. We see there in verse 18. This looks forward even further in time to Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 where the wicked dead will be raised and they will face their final sentencing there at what is known as the great white throne judgment. The Bible says that Jesus will be there sitting in the judge's bench. Books will be opened, the book of the works, book of the conscience, book of words. And as those books are opened, each sinner that appears before Jesus will be condemned by their conscience and by their words and by their works. And friend, that is where they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And they're the most chilling words that could ever be run across. The eardrums of a human will be heard. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. Reminded of a story that Warren Wearsby told. In one of his books, he spoke of a frontier town where a horse bolted away and it was carrying a wagon and in that wagon was a little child. And somebody saw that the child was in danger and so a young man risked his life and jumped on his horse and chased down that runaway bolting horse and got in the wagon and stopped it. The child was rescued. But as time and chance would have it, that young man who was in that carriage grew up to be a lawless man. He started running with the gamblers and the wrestlers and the drinkers. And he became a lawless man. And one day, he committed a serious crime. And he was arrested and brought in and standing there before the judge's bench. As if the sentence was given out, the young man recognized who was there donned in the black robe and held the gavel. It was the very man who years ago had got on that horse to rescue him from that runaway wagon. And the young man there began to plead for mercy on the basis of that experience. He said, I, don't you remember that day? I know you and, and you know me. You rescued me. Have mercy on me, judge. But the words from the judge silenced that young man's pleas. With the gavel was struck... He said, young man, on that day I was your Savior, but today I'm your judge. And friend, I'm here to tell you today in all seriousness with love in my heart and tears in my eyes that God's grace has an expiration date. We choose whether Jesus will be our Savior or whether He will be our judge. Friend, I'd rather come to Him and plead the blood and come to the cross of Jesus Christ and be forgiven today. He can wipe your record clean. Your record can be thrown out of court by the judge and by the king because of his blood and his sacrifice. His death on the cross can atone for your past, your present, and your future. The Bible says that God's Spirit will not always strive with man. Listen to me, church. There's a payday someday. So come to Christ while there's still time. His victory over the nations. His verdict over the dead. And we see two verses have now been 
completed here. They offer praise for Christ's reign, praise for Christ's retribution. And now at the end of verse 18, they offer another praise, and that's for Christ's reward. Notice what the Bible says here. And for the rewarding of your saints, your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. Now, one of the most fascinating studies that a student of the Word of God can take is to understand the doctrine of rewards. Because woven all throughout the New Testament is this teaching that God's people are going to be judged according to their words and according to their works. Jesus Christ, in a place called the Bema Seat, when we're brought to heaven, will be rewarded, will be judged on the basis of our faithfulness in ministry. The issue will not be whether or not we qualify for heaven. That's taken care of at the cross. But as ch children of God, the issue will be the loss or the gain of reward. And that's what this passage speaks about, the rewarding of the servants. Listen to the way Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 13, he says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Paul talks about there in that passage that things done with the wrong heart, with the wrong motivation, with the wrong spirit will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. But those things done for Christ and the purity of heart will persevere like gold, silver, and precious stones. Revelation twenty two twelve also says this, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now when is this going to happen? Most theologians believe that this takes place soon thereafter the rapture when the church is brought up to heaven to be with Christ. As seven years of tribulation and judgment are taking place on the earth, the church will be judged, and then we will celebrate what Christ has done. What sort of things is Jesus going to be looking at, you might be asking. Well, we know from the New Testament that these are some of the categories He's going to be looking at in our lives. Our financial stewardship, according to Matthew 6, 19-21. How did we handle God's money? Did we invest in eternity, or did we invest in the earth? He's going to be looking at our faithfulness in ministry. Did we serve Him? Did we complete our race? And did we do it with the right heart? He's going to be looking at rewarding those who persevered through persecution, according to Matthew 5, 10, and 12. Our compassion for others, our hospitality. The Bible says that every cup of cold water given out will be rewarded by Jesus Christ. Our passion for soul winning. There's a soul winner's crown in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. And also our pursuit of godliness and holiness. These are the things that Jesus is going to be looking at in our lives as Christians. Now, the Bible doesn't spell out every kind of award that awaits the church. But let me just talk to you about a few. The Bible talks about an eternal diadem. Now, don't get tripped up by that word. A diadem is just a fancy word to make me sound smart. That means a crown. <laughs> Specifically, the New Testament mentions five kinds of crowns that the believer can win. There may be more. We don't know. The crown of life, the crown of glory, the incorruptible crown, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of 
rejoicing. And as I said earlier, friend, you don't want to be empty-handed. I don't want to be empty-handed when I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to have something to cast at His feet in worship. The Bible also talks about another kind of reward that is for God's people, and that's an eternal dwelling. One of the great rewards that awaits the faithful, listen to this, is a resurrection body. Free from depravity, free from death, free from decay. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Like the old song says, my house ain't much to look at, but my home's a sight to see. By the way, I know that the older that we become, the better that resurrection body sounds, doesn't it? I heard about a couple who'd been married for 60 years. They were celebrating their big anniversary day, and they were out there on the front porch, and they started reminiscing about the good old days and about their romance. The little wife said, Honey, do you remember when I used to sit real close to you and when we were courting, we'd ride around in your old car? And the old husband, he, he knew how to take a hint. So he scooted over real close to his wife. And she continued, she said, Honey, and do you remember when we were courting how you used to hold me tight? And he knew what to do. He didn't say a word, he just threw his arm around his dear wife and held her close. And then she continued, she said, And I remember, do you remember when you used to nuzzle me and you used to nibble on my ear when we sat real close? He stood up. He was walking away. His wife was insulted. She was indignant. She said, And where do you think you're going? He said, I'm going to get my teeth. <laughs> I'm going to get my teeth. Friend, listen to me. Are you looking forward to an ageless, deathless, sinless, painless body with new eyes to behold Him, new hands to serve Him, new feet to walk with Him, a new voice to sing praises to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? I'm looking forward to spending eternity with you in a land that knows no sorrow, where all things are new, will be there throughout the ages. Soon we'll bid this world adieu. I'm looking forward to spending eternity with you. An eternal diadem, an eternal dwelling. And then he talks about an eternal duty. Another reward of Christ. The degree to which we are faithful in serving Christ now will determine the level of responsibility that Jesus will give us in His coming kingdom. Christ promises the believers in Thyatira, listen to what He said in Revelation 2.26. And He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end... To him I will give power over the nations. Friend, as I read that verse, I would be happy to be the street sweeper in heaven. I just want to be where Jesus is. David said, I'd rather be the doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Praise for Christ's reward. And then lastly, he finishes up, the church finishes up singing in verse 19, praise for Christ's redemption notice what this text says and then God's temple in heaven was open the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple 
There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. Now as we begin this chapter, the temple was open on the earth. Now as we close this chapter, we see the temple is open in heaven. And we notice here in verse 19 that the focus is on an interesting piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. A symbol of God's presence with His people. Now for those of you that know the Old Testament, you know what the Ark of the Covenant contained. Inside were a few special objects according to Hebrews 9.4. Inside were the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. There was a jar of manna in there. And also Aaron's rod which budded. Now on top of the Ark was the mercy seat. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where there sat the Ark of the Covenant. And there on top of that mercy seat with those angels facing one another and those wings stretched out, he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement to cover the sins of the nation Israel for another year. And the Ark was also the place where the Shekinah glory of God rested. And as long as the ark was with the people, the people knew that God was with them. Now as you read this passage and it it ends up, you think, what a strange placement for the ark of the covenant. This is a prophecy about the future. Why is this relic from the past there? But what I think we come to learn from this is something very interesting. First off, it shows us that God's not done with Israel. God is going to redeem His people. He has a purpose and a plan for the Jewish nation. The God who brought them out of slavery, the God who preserved them in the wilderness, the God who sent Christ to fulfill the law and the prophets is still going to be faithful to His covenant people. But then as I also read this, I understand what the ark stood for. I understood what was inside that box, the law. And man could not be saved by keeping the law. Friend, I look at the law and I see how I fall short. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And that broken law by man had to be redeemed by somebody who could keep the law perfectly. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. Why He died on the cross for you and me. Because His blood would be the atoning sacrifice. And of course, we know who our high priest is. We don't have to go to a priest today. Jesus is our high priest. And the book of Hebrews says that He has applied His own blood to that tabernacle in heaven, to the ark and the mercy seat in heaven, recognizing that His blood covers the sin of the church. And friend, when I see the altar open and the glory of God emanating from that ark, it's an invitation to you and I just in the Old Testament as the priest would go in to the presence of a thrice holy God. You and I through the blood of Jesus Christ unworthy to be able to say His name can enter into the very glory and the presence of God because the Lamb who was slain is now risen. And as I read that, I'm encouraged. Because even though this world is hurtling toward tribulation, there's good news. The good news is that the Lamb will triumph. Before World War II erupted, there's a man named Ewan MacDonald. He was a professor 
but he was captured as the war broke out in 1942. Captured by the Germans and put in a concentration camp. They had in that camp, though, a fence that went right down the middle of the camp. They put the Brits on one side and the captured Americans they put on the other. And Ewan MacDonald says in his book that for some reason, when the Germans split up the troops that were captured there, that he went with the Americans. Well, unknown to the guards, the Americans in their ingenuity had made a little homemade radio. And even though they were in that prison camp, they were able to tune in and get news of the war. And every day, Ewan MacDonald would take news of a headline or two to the fence. And he spoke the ancient language of Gaelic, and he would tell his friends across the way who could understand that language what the news was. Well, one day the news came over the radio that the German high command had surrendered and that the war was over. MacDonald came to the fence just like he had done every day, and he spoke to his friends there, and then he watched them disappear into the barracks. And he said all of a sudden he could hear hooping and hollering and shouting coming from a place of death. Inside those barracks there was triumph, there was glory, there was praise and joy. He said this in his book, he said, For the next few days life in that camp was transformed. Men walked around singing and shouting, waving at the guards, even laughing at the guards. And when the German guards finally heard the news three days later, they fled into the night and left the gates unlocked. The next morning, he said, U.S. troops liberated the camp and the POWs threw off their chains and walked free. Yet, he said, we had been set free in our spirit three days earlier when we heard the news that the war had been decided. And friend, I'm telling you today that Revelation 11 is like a radio bulletin from the other side telling us the war has already been decided. The King of Kings has won. And you as a child of God don't have to walk around hopeless with your head hung low. You can walk around in praise and glory knowing that you serve the One who's going to balance the scales of justice and defeat the enemy and reign victorious on the earth. And friend, what a joy it is to know Jesus. Do you know Him today as your personal Savior? Religion won't save you. Church attendance won't save you. Donating and philanthropy won't save you. Being a good person won't qualify you for, to heaven. You've got to have Jesus. You've got to have your sins washed away. You've got to know Him in a personal and a real way. This altar is going to be open now. If you need to receive Jesus, I'll be here. If you need prayer in your life, I'll be here. Maybe you need to follow through with baptism like our brother did. I want to hear what your decision would be.